And now our scripture reading this morning comes from John chapter 11, verses 17 through 44. It's a long one, but I'd ask if you can remain standing. Now when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. So when Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went and met him. But Mary remained seated in the house. Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is coming into the world. When she had said this, she went and called her sister Mary, saying in private, The teacher is here and is calling for you. And when she heard it, she rose quickly and went to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the village, but was still in the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her, supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, He was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. And Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is God's word. Please be seated. Well, good morning again. And before I jump into what I had prepared this morning, uh, I feel compelled 
to uh, stop and pray before, before I preach. Uh, I, haven't, I hadn't read the news this morning, but multiple people have told me of what happened in Sri Lanka. Brothers and sisters uh, in Christ uh, went to worship at their places of worship, and um, there were explosions. And of course, this was premeditated, and hundreds of people uh, were affected. Many lost their lives. And so I, I say that now for two reasons. One, I want to pray. And two, I wonder, I just wonder if this might make everything I share a little less abstract, a little less theoretical, that we would understand that what we gather here for today is very real. And it is our only hope. And life can end in an instant. And what is my hope? Is my hope in the life, death, and resurrection, and therefore my resurrection of Jesus? And I'm challenged by that this morning. So let's pray for these brothers and sisters and these families. Father, we come to you grateful for all the good things you've given us. And and part of that is is this building right now where we're here together and seemingly safe. And we grieve, I grieve, the loss of these brothers and sisters in Christ, these lives due to darkness and evil and ignorance. And uh, we pray now as... That scene is probably still chaos and wailing and confusion that your glory would be shining forth in the hearts of your people and that all of us would be drawn to you even more. Help us grieve with those who grieve. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, it's hard to make that transition, but uh, it was important to do that. Now, there are things that catch us off guard, right? That caught me off guard this morning. This catches us off guard. And I read about an account this week that really would catch us off guard. It starts with a man who goes to the emergency room uh, with pain in his stomach. And it, it turns out that there's a, there's a bleed in his stomach. And they take him for an emergency, into emergency surgery and as they're doing the surgery, things seem to, go be, seem to be going well until they're not going well. And of course, uh, the heart rate begins to increase, blood pressure goes down, one thing leads to another, and they begin chest compressions to try to save this man. They shock him five times, uh, pump his body filled with all types of drugs to, to restart his heart, and all of it uh, doesn't work. And so they, the doctor pronounces him dead. Uh, they, they turn off the machines, uh, all of the, blood, or all of the uh, medication stops being pressed into his veins, and yet the, the residents and medical students and the surgeon remain in the room because the surgeon is, is teaching the residents what happened and talking through it. And 10 minutes after the pronouncement, time of death, um, the surgeon notices something, and he checks the wrist of the patient and he feels a pulse. This was 10 minutes later. And so they begin to, uh, they turn back on the machine. And sure enough, uh, there is a slight pulse. And it keeps getting stronger and stronger. And it gets to the point to where they decide to continue on with the surgery. The surgery is successful. Uh, 15 days later, to their shock, uh, brain tests show that everything is normal. And the man leaves. And he lives his normal life. 
Now, this is rare, but it does happen, and it has a name. It's called the Lazarus Phenomenon. 38 times it's accounted for in the medical literature. First time was 1982. And basically, the the technical definition is the return of spontaneous circulation after the cessation of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. (laughs) Uh, To say it another way, when people do CPR for a really long time and then stop... Sometimes the average of 10 minutes up to hours later, for no explainable reason, circulation remain, starts again on its own. Uh, one woman actually woke up in the morgue. Now, I know that's your worst nightmare. Okay? It's very rare. Probably underreported, says the literature that I read, because what doctor wants to admit that they pronounced the patient dead and they came back to life? Right? If, there's, if you had one job, that would not be the one you'd want to get wrong. You know what I mean? Now listen, that seems unthinkable to me. There's a name for it though, Lazarus phenomenon. And of course, Lazarus is a central, not the central, but a central character in our passage this morning. And we live in a world where the unthinkable happens. We've all experienced the unthinkable. It, does, it may not be that extreme, but in another way, it is that extreme. What about the reconciliation of a relationship that you thought was long gone. Has that ever happened to you before? You thought that would never come back. And yet it's resuscitated. It comes back. About the softening of a loved one towards Jesus when they've lived most of their lives absolutely against him and everything to do with him. What about a new and unexplained hope again after years of trying to start a family with no success? What about the warming of your heart in a hard situation when nothing externally has changed and you can't explain it, but all of a sudden your heart is warmed again towards people or a life or the Lord. In all these instances, we experience the unexpected. It happens. And in our passage today, everyone experienced the unexpected. Everyone experienced the unthinkable Now they thought they knew who Jesus was and they thought they knew what he was about and they thought that they knew what he was capable of. And yet in this passage, the unthinkable happens. In this passage, we encounter three really important things about Jesus. First, we're introduced and reminded of Jesus's identity. And then his indignation, we're introduced to his indignation in the face of death and unbelief. And then we experience and notice an invitation in the midst of this that Jesus extends to us. And so those are the three things we're going to look at this morning in this famous passage of Lazarus. So first, Jesus's identity. It's a long passage. We won't be able to hit all of it. But uh, in each point when they do come up, uh, I have the verse that uh, accords with that point uh, on the screen. So first, Jesus' identity. This is in verse 25, but I want to set the scene a little bit. Now, Jesus knew this was going to happen. Jesus told his disciples this was going to happen. But yet, who expects it, even if they're told it's going to happen? Well, when Jesus doesn't even get quite into town, we see that Martha runs out to him. Now, you'll notice in the passage that there were these people who were wailing, And it's important for you to know that it was Jewish funeral custom 
that dictated even a poor family was expected to hire at least two flute players and a professional wailing woman. Now, the fact that there were so many Jews shows probably two things. One, this was a very wealthy family. They hired many people. And two, they were probably well-known. The other thing that we need to know in this context is this is a turning point in the Gospel of John. This is the final sign that John gives us. Although there are many miracles that John could have chosen, he chooses seven that are the most crucial, he thinks. And this is the final one. And after this, in the Gospel of John, things quickly head towards Jesus' death. And so we're in this very almost climactic moment, certainly a hinge point in the Gospel of John. That's where we find ourselves. And that sort of heightens this account in what we have. And in verse 21, Martha comes up to Jesus and says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Now, interestingly, when later on her sister Mary comes up, she says the exact same thing. Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. So there is this powerful grief, but yet this confused but strong belief in who Jesus is and what he was capable of. So, of course, this first encounter, Martha walks up to Jesus and says, says to him what I just said. You're, I'm sorry, says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But then she goes on. But even now I know that whatever you ask from God, God will give you. Verse 23, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Now, this is a little ambiguous. He doesn't say when. He just says it will happen. So what is her response in verse 24? Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Now, depending on how you read this, this certainly is a a profession of faith and it shows that she understands who Jesus is. And yet there is kind of uh, this sense in which she's saying, that doesn't really help me now. I know that he will rise again. But right now, Jesus, what I'm saying is if you would have been here now, he would be alive. And Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Now, what is Jesus saying when he says, I am the resurrection and the life? He's saying something very important about who he is. And I think what he really wants to do to Martha and therefore to us is to, he wants to divert Martha's attention and her focus from this abstract belief on what will happen in the last day. There will be a resurrection. And he wants to call her, yes, that's true, but he wants to call her from that abstract belief to this personalized belief in in him and what he alone can provide. Earlier, Jesus also said, he's the only one who gives the bread from heaven because he is the bread from heaven. And in this case, He's the only one that can raise the dead because he is the resurrection. Now, is Jesus saying that the resurrection and the life are two ways of saying the same thing or are these two different things? This is a question that I asked and it seems most commentators believe that what Jesus is saying is two separate things. That Jesus is the resurrection and Jesus is the life. He's pointing out two different realities and he actually expounds upon that In our passage, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection, he goes on to point out that there will be a resurrection on the last day. That's when he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. When he says that, he's pointing to what Martha has in her mind of 
resurrection on the last day. But he had something else, something very important that he wants us and he wants Martha to get. He also says, I am the life. Whoever lives and believes in me will never die. Now, this is something that is stated over and over in John's gospel. This life that Jesus is talking about is life of the kingdom, saving life. We talked about it last week, two weeks ago, eternal life, right? So this idea, this recurring theme repeated over and over is this promise that those who believe in Jesus immediately possess eternal life because eternal life is a quality of life. Jesus says, I tell you the truth, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. That's what he says in John chapter 8 and others, other places. So this type of life that Jesus is talking about is a different type of life. It's a qualitatively different type of life. And now what I want to do is I want to talk specifically to you Christians. Those of you who say you believe in Jesus, I want to know, do we look forward to the resurrection at the last day? as an abstract theological statement of truth. Of course, it's in the creed. I believe it. It was in the, the assurance of faith that we read. Do we only look forward to the resurrection as some abstract future reality that has no bearings on our faith in life right now? Or do we believe that Jesus is the life, that he is where we will find the source of life right now? I just wonder, me included, Where are the places last week and later today and next week that you will be tempted to go find life? All the while saying, Jesus, I know I'll be raised on the last day. I know that's my hope. But yet we will try to find life in the meantime in other things. But Jesus wants us to know in the same way he tells Martha, Martha, no, no, no. Yes, it is true. There will be a resurrection on the last day. But wherever I am, that's where resurrection life starts. That's where it happens. Wherever I am, there's life. As I was thinking about this, as often happens, I came across an article that was written this past week in the New York Times by a columnist named David Brooks. And he writes about five lies our culture believes that promise fulfillment. And yet he points out at the beginning of this article that suicide rates are going up, At an all-time high on our university campuses, it's reported more and more students are presenting uh, to the clinics on campus as depressed and experiencing depression. So why is this happening? And he's thinking about this, and he offers five lies. And and I want to go through them pretty quickly. And I want you to ask yourself this question. Which one of these lies, or which ones of these lies, am I most prone to think will give me life? And I'm chasing those instead of the life that is offered in Jesus. The first lie he offers is the lie that we believe that says, I can make myself happy. And he calls this the lie of self-sufficiency. And this lie is that happiness is an individual accomplishment. So in other words, if you have one more victory or lose 15 more pounds or get better at meditation or whatever your goals are, then you'll be happy. But it's really about you. It's about your own self-sufficiency. So you'll become more happy when you become more self-sufficient. The next one is career success is ultimately fulfilling. He said that's the second lie that's perpetuated in our day and age. And this, he says, is if you build your life around your career, your ambitions will always race out in front of what you've achieved. And so therefore you'll always be anxious. You'll always be satisfied. He, He says that, 
The first book he came out with on character hit the New York Times bestseller list. And his publisher called him and told him, and he said, I felt nothing. Why? Because there's always the next book. There's always the next thing. So the third lie is life is an individual journey. And he says, in adulthood, each person goes on a personal trip and racks up a bunch of experiences. And whoever has the most experiences wins. And this lie encourages people to believe that freedom is the absence of restraint. This lie says, be unattached, stay on the move, keep your options open always. And he said, that turns you inward and selfish. And you, you push away the richest thing that you can have, which is deep rooted relationships with other people. Do you believe this lie? Do you think that if you're ever going to be happy that you have to do it yourself? Do you think that the only way you'll be happy is through career success? And do you have a view of life that puts you at the center and makes you the most important? The fourth one is you have to find your own truth. And he says, this is the privatization of meaning. He says, the problem is that unless your name is Aristotle, you probably won't be able to do this. Right? Because most of us wind up trying to find our own truth at best with a few vague moral feelings, but no moral clarity or rich sense of purpose. And the reality is that values are actually created and passed down by strong, self-confident communities and institutions. Right? We think tradition is bad. You can't find your own truth. You're just borrowing someone else's that you think is your own and calling it your own. And then the fifth lie, he says, is that rich and successful people are worth more than poorer and less successful people. And he says, this is actually the hardest for us to believe. He says, we pretend we don't tell this lie. We pretend we don't believe this lie. But our whole meritocracy points it out. The message of the meritocracy, he says, is that you are what you accomplish. And the false promise of the meritocracy is that you can earn more dignity by attaching yourself to prestige. And the emotion of the meritocracy is conditional love. And that is, if you perform well, people will love you. So I'm wondering, which of these lies do you believe? Because you better believe that Mary and Martha in our passage today and all who were there, they may have believed and profess that Jesus was the resurrection on the last day. But did they believe that he is the life right now? Did they believe that he was the only one that could give them meaning and produce the joy that they so longed for? And do you and I believe that? So out at the front, we learn something unexpected about Jesus, that his identity is not just about us in the future, but when we trust in him, his identity as the life and resurrection begins now. Right now. And it can happen in this instant. You can repent. And you can turn back to Jesus. And so Jesus is the resurrection and the life. But Jesus doesn't just teach us about his identity. But he also teaches us something when we see his indignation in this passage. This is in verse 33 and 38. So after Martha and Jesus have this interaction, when Jesus says, listen, I am the resurrection and I am the life. 
He then tells Martha to go get her sister, Mary. And in verse 32 says, Now when Mary came to where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come with her also weeping. Just stop. Imagine this. Jesus hasn't even gotten in the town yet. And there's this whole crowd of people coming to him. And, and Mary falls at his feet. I imagine weeping uncontrollably. I don't think she just says, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would have died. I think she's hard to understand because she can't catch her breath because she's weeping so deeply. And there may not even actually be tears because she's been crying for days. Maybe she hasn't slept in three days. Maybe she hasn't eaten. Maybe she's hoarse from wailing. That's the emotion. That's what Jesus sees. He saw, seeing this and watching these mourners following her. Jesus sees And he he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Now we'll see this again in verse 38 in a moment. But it's important to point out that there's only three times in the entire New Testament that this word for deeply moved is, is written. And it's twice in our passage. And it's notoriously difficult to translate because it's not used very often in general. And when it is used... It's often used about an animal bellowing or grunting or growling. Not so much about humans, but when it is put towards humans, it is a deep, almost instinctual, primal type emotion and feeling. And so what do we make of this? When John points out that this happened twice, we see it again in 38. So Jesus goes to the tomb. They said to him, Lord, come and see And then Jesus weeps. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And then of course, Martha says, no, we don't want to do that. It will smell very badly. So what is happening in this indignation? That's a way that this can be translated. What do we learn? Well, first of all, I've already mentioned it's a rare word. But why? Why this reaction from Jesus? Is it the death of Lazarus? Is he, is he moved because of death, which he has come to earth to overturn? Maybe. Is it the unbelief of those around him that has moved him? Maybe. And it's probably both. It's probably a mixture of both of these things. One commentator uh, says this, perhaps one may dare to say only this. And he's talking about what do we make of this deep indignation that Jesus has. And he says, perhaps we may dare only to say this, that in the immediate presence of death and of the hopeless unbelief of his friends in the face of death, Jesus was facing that power which he had come to destroy. A power which is met by the wrath of him who is the author of life, but which could only be cast out when the author of life took the whole power of death upon himself. So you see, Jesus knows in his ministry that things are hinging. 
He knows that the very thing he sees right in front of his faith, his face, death and unbelief, it's the very thing that only his death could overcome. And Jesus is deeply moved. Jesus is angry. Jesus is passionate. And my question is, what can this teach us? What can this teach us that Jesus was deeply moved and grieved? Well, I think it can teach us a few things. D.A. Carson points this out. He says, rather, the same sin and death, the same unbelief that prompted his outrage also generated his grief. Do you see that? Jesus wept and Jesus was outraged. Jesus was deeply pained, but Jesus wept. These very things that triggered in him that deep anger also triggered in him deep empathy. Those who follow Jesus as his disciples today do well to learn from the same tension, that grief and compassion without outrage reduce to mere sentiment. Did you hear that? Grief and compassion without outrage reduced to mere sentiment, while outrage without grief hardens into self-righteous arrogance and being hot-tempered. Where do we see this? I think we see this all over the place. It has a name. It's had a name since 2015 is the first place I saw it. It's called the culture of outrage. Sometimes it's called the call-out culture. It happens a lot on social media where people get behind a cause and show indignant outrage for something. But oftentimes it misses compassion, doesn't it? We get so outraged. It's a moral imperative to somehow up the rhetoric about how outraged we are about the newest thing that we should be outraged over. And then eventually it's just noise, isn't it? It just becomes noise. I'm exhausted by trying to figure out what now I should be outraged about. And it's not because those things don't deserve being outraged over. It's because I'm lacking another, another way, something else along with the outrage. And Jesus shows us both. He shows us that outrage must come with grief, but grief must also come with godly, just outrage. One writer puts it this way, that the negative aspect of outrage culture is its naivete and its use of polarized thinking in which people are categorized as either good or evil. And then if you have those categories, when a person's called out, they can be rendered into a non-person, right? And when they're rendered as a non-person, there's a denunciation of that person. And so then you can destroy lives with words, without any process, without any mercy, without any awareness of human frailty, and without offering a path to redemption. How often do you in your mind attack a person, a politician, who's so, so outrageous to you, a cause, and you either meet it, with, meet it with only compassion and empathy and sympathy, but no outrage, which causes you to do nothing, or you only meet it with outrage, and there's no sympathy, there's no empathy, there's no compassion. There's no desire for redemption. But Jesus holds these together perfectly. And doesn't he always hold things together perfectly? Doesn't Jesus show us how virtues come together in one man that when we see them, they're so beautiful, but we would never expect them to be together in the same person? Listen, listen to this. There's a writer who, who, who tried to bring this together and, and they say this. 
This is about Jesus. Despite his high claims, he is never pompous. He, he is tenderness without weakness. He is strength without harshness. He is humility without the slightest lack of confidence. What would that be like? To see someone who's so humble, but lacks no confidence. He is unhesitating in his authority with a complete lack of self-absorption. He is unbending in his conviction without the slightest lack of approachability. He is power without insensitivity. He is enthusiasm without fanaticism. He is holiness without Phariseeism. He is passion without prejudice. Nothing he does falls short. This is Jesus. This is our Lord. This is the one we are here to worship today. Jesus combines things that we love but never see in the same person. And that's what we learn a little bit of Jesus's indignation. We see that he's calling us to him, the one who holds these things perfectly together. But he doesn't just show us who he is more deeply in his identity as the resurrection and the life. He doesn't show us only how to respond appropriately by watching his indignation, but he also invites us to him. There's an invitation to know him, to follow him. If we go back up to verse 25b and verse 26, after Jesus tells Martha of his identity, he says, whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? The word believe three times. What, is the, what does that mean? What does believe mean? Well, believe means complete trust or reliance on something. It means complete trust or reliance on something. Very simple. You, you may have heard this a thousand times. Right now you are displaying complete belief by sitting in that chair because you completely believe it will hold you up. If you didn't, you'd be on its edge. You would be standing, but you completely are believing that chair right now. So in something so small, what does it mean to completely believe with your whole life upon Jesus? You see, faith in Jesus is the only way we can draw life from God. Faith in Jesus is the only way we can draw life from God. And you need to know something. Jesus does not say, he, he said, what he does say is he who believes in me will never die. What he does not say is he that loves me. Though love is, of course, a bright grace, as Charles Spurgeon said. And it's very sweet to God. He also does not say he that serves me though everyone that believes in Christ will, of course, serve him. He does not even say, he that imitates me, though everyone that believes in Christ must and will imitate him. But he says, he who believes in me. It's a big difference. How many of you find your security in your love for him or in your service of him or in your affection toward him? It's very fickle. It's not very sturdy. I was thinking, if we believe in Jesus partly and then the rest we believe in our own strength, it's like checking your pulse with your thumb. Right? Maybe you may not know this, but 
you can find your pulse right now with two fingers, maybe here by your wrist or right here on your neck. But, but CPR 101, when you're checking for a pulse, don't use your thumb. The reason is because your thumb has a pulse of its own. And you might believe that this person has a pulse, but in fact, it's your own pulse. Well, faith is a little bit like that. If you look to anything for your security in Jesus, besides his life and his pulse, so to speak, you will be fooled. If you look to anything besides Jesus fully, you may be tricked into believing that you have trusted him when in fact you haven't. In other words, don't look or rely on your love or your service or your grasp even of theology or a vague idea of what is right, but look to Jesus. Look to the man that we see in the gospels, our Lord who lives and is close and is worthy of all trust. Right now, what would it mean for you to look to Jesus and to see him? Leslie Newbegin said, when the message of the kingdom is divorced from the person of Jesus, it becomes a program or an ideology, but not a gospel. You see, if your faith stops looking at Jesus, but looks at a theology or an ideology or a program or a formula, you've lost grasp of good news. And so this morning, Easter morning is a wonderful time to check your pulse, but don't use your thumb. Are you looking at all to yourself or are you wholly placing your trust in Jesus? You see, dead people from the past, you remember what they stood for. And that's called carrying on remembrance or it produces an ideology. But living people you follow, living people you listen to, living people you trust, you look to them, you talk to them, you seek their guidance. Jesus Christ is alive this morning. Jesus is raised from the dead. And it's the message of Easter that makes Christianity good news and not merely a good life system. Jesus is alive and he's calling you and me to trust him completely for your life. He's calling you and me today to find freedom and life in him. And when you do, that's the beginning of resurrection. When you do, that's the beginning of of experiencing Jesus as the life. So if this all seems a little too abstract, this is, this is what I want to leave you with. What is it exactly that you think will give you life? And this week, when you find yourself, I don't know, uh, melancholy, when you find yourself disappointed, when you find yourself excited, ask yourself, can this be taken from me? And if it can be, you need to go deeper. Because whatever that thing is, you think it's giving you life, but it will be taken from you. But Jesus will never be taken from you. Even death could not take him from us because he raised and he's alive. And this is Christianity. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would teach us this morning of Jesus' identity even now, it's not that he had this identity, but he has this identity as the resurrection and the life. Lord Jesus, you teach us so much in your indignation, your perfection, 
where your compassion and empathy and anger at unbelief are held together perfectly in tension without sin. And it's your death that overcomes our unbelief. It overcomes our death. And Lord Jesus, thank you for, even in our failure, continuing to invite us back to you. You invite us back to you to experience you as life and resurrection. And it's in your name we pray. Amen.